glorious players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of magic the gathering. Swords to Plowshare, Lightning Bolt, Stoneforge Mystic, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. Welcome to episode 14 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. My name's Anurag Das, and I'm joined here today with Brian Cook and Eddie Zamora. What's up, boys? How's it going? Well, hey, guys. What's happening? Eddie here. Wow, Eddie. Did you become a Texan? Wait, that didn't sound like Eddie at all. Uh, Wilson, is that you? Are you back? Hey, everybody. Very happy to be back. Sorry oh about the absence. God, I missed you so much, Wilson. You don't even understand. Miss you guys a lot, too. There was a Reddit user who said that... He- he missed your presence on the, or they missed your presence on the podcast. Wow. Thank you, Reddit user. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Wait, where were you though, Wilson? What, what was what was you up to? So we went on a rare family vacation. Had not taken one since starting Cardboard Live a year and a half ago. Uh, went to the beach with the kids. Had a lot of fun. Did a little bit of fishing. During that fishing which was surf fishing, you know, just out, out in the sand and whatnot. I hooked a massive king mackerel, and I know that's what it was because it jumped up in the air after fighting it for a little while, and then it snapped my line. So it was it was quite sad. It was cool to hook a large fish like that in the surf. I caught a lot of small things. Kids loved it. Um, we got to see some bottlenose dolphins. We we didn't catch anything large enough to be worth eating. Like We caught some whiting, a juvenile pompano. Uh, we caught about five stingrays. Don't want to eat those. Uh, they're quite heavy to to drag into the shore. That's but pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. I so, uh, so I live in San Diego, and uh, this weekend, this past weekend, I had some friends come over, and we went snorkeling. And oh snap! I'm pretty sure I almost died about five times, and uh, scared all the lobsters and stingrays in the nearby vicinity. So. Uh, I, I, I've realized that I am not a huge fan of kelp, but the, the whole snorkeling being like deep in the ocean experience was pretty cool. So that that's that's nice. Hey, are you going to TwitchCon this year in San Diego? Ooh, I was thinking about it. That's in a couple of weeks, right? I will be there. It's in three weeks. Oh, yeah. That's after the Grand Prix? It is. Uh, do I need to buy tickets for it? You do. Okay, cool. Yeah, then I guess I'll see you there. And this is an open invitation to anyone who's listening to come say hi. Wait, should we do a um, the epic uh, the Eternal Glory podcast uh, meetup at TwitchCon? We should if there's enough people going. I don't. I, I have no idea how many Magic players actually go to, to TwitchCon. Our sponsors, the Epic Storm and uh, Cardboard Live, can fly out Mr. Cook from uh, Syracuse to come visit. That'd be pretty cool. There you go. I think the Epic Storm said that they'd take care of the flight, and uh, CBL has the merch down. So thank you, sponsors. We've got another exciting topic today. Um, you heard a little bit, about, a little bit about us, what we've been up to. Um, we got some more stuff for you, but first, it's always the quick hits. So first, donations. Ding ding ding. Marshall Arthur's with that big money, fifty dollars. Thank you so much, good sir. And I mean, I feel like this is just every episode where we get to see like Dick Fisher. I get to say his name. Um, 
and it's it's just hilarious to me. But also, get it like, okay, cool. Uh, but Dick, thank you so much for the uh the uh, the donation. Unfortunately, I will not be at SCG Syracuse, but apparently, uh, Bryant and Wilson have already locked into hanging out with you and sipping some beers. So that's awesome to look forward to. Um, I do want to get into the meat of the matter. Last week. We had a special guest, Eddie Zamora, who visited. Um, we had him in episode six. And last uh, last week, we got to talk about Tribal, which is sort of his uh, forte and specialty. So check out that episode if you haven't already. Um, so Wilson, you went on a family vacation. That was pretty cool. How's your diet going, by the way? It's good. So yeah, we have, we have three bullets right here for me. One is king mackerel fishing. Um, the di- the diet is is done. I'm trying to generally be healthy. I ended up losing about 30 pounds in 30 days stabilized about five pounds more than that so maybe net negative 25 but feeling a lot better give me a lot more energy glad i did it so right now i'm sipping a tankard of water which in my previous life would either be a tankard of whole milk or some sort of uh adult beverage to enjoy while recording so making healthier habits happen post-diet yeah one of my friends said that dairy is the enemy um so that's cool. Brian, what about you? What are you up to? Well, I was in Denver for a weekend, a long weekend. I was actually there for four days. I stayed directly next to the Colorado Rockies baseball stadium. Sadly, they were not in town. The day I flew out, uh, the Atlanta Braves actually flew in for a one-game series against the Rockies, but I did not get to watch any baseball, which kind of bummed me out since I'm a huge baseball fan. While I was there for four days, I did look for the game store. I stayed downtown. I couldn't find one. I was told that there's a couple in the outer reach, but I just don't know if I was looking in the wrong place or what the deal was. And after that, fans of the podcast, do me a favor. Tweet Saffron Olive, contact MTG Goldfish, whatever you have to do, scream at them through the internet. Tell them to quit labeling the Epic Storm as Ad Nauseum Tendrils. I personally tweeted at Saffron Olive. I've done their suggested deck name. I've had other people do it as well. And uh, they won't change the deck name. So do me that favor and get them to fix their shit. Yeah, maybe we just make our own website called MTG Hammerhead. And then we just like have only everything labeled as the Epic Storm. That'll that'll solve our problem. No, but for real, that's actually true. Uh, the naming conventions in Legacy have always been like super random. I'm looking at exactly Ice Station Zebra when I say this. Uh, so I don't know, just like locking down and keeping things consistent and uh, and nice. I personally just refer to both decks as the Epic Tendrils to keep it simple. Is that acceptable? Perfect. Anurag, uh, other than you having your friends over to Snorkel, what have you been up to? I've been kind of on like a magic hiatus. I've just been busy with a bunch of other stuff. For the past three weeks, I've been out of town for work. I've been out of town getting my marriage license. Application <gasps> started. That's pretty cool. And oh, then, snap. yeah, then this past week was um, my birthday and my uh, friends came over to visit. So that was all pretty, pretty exciting. Some pretty good times. I don't know. Uh, how old did you turn? Well, that's such a rude question to ask. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I am now 20, one, two, three, six, seven years old. All right. Yeah. 27 years old. So, <gasps> yeah, I know. I know exactly. Right. I am such an adult. It's insane. The most mature out of all of us, very clearly. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been going TikTok. I didn't really do anything special for my birthday. I kind of just like, it was one of those days where I was just like, like every other day, but I kind of like appreciated everything around me. It's like, sort of like an eye opening day. It was very, 
uh, grateful for my friends, for my, I don't know, just everything in my life, and for my, my podcast co-hosts. So that was pretty cool. Um, but more magic-related, I do believe we have to give props to one of our um, listeners, Kyle Flynn, who apparently went 10-1 and one in one of the Legacy Challenges, going undefeated in the Swiss and then losing in the finals with the deck that Kyle himself created. What was that deck again? Jund Phoenix. We actually talked about it in episode five after I faced Kyle at Magic Fest Niagara Falls. Yeah, it was a super exciting deck. Um, I think, the, what, how does it work? It's got like Rite of Flame, Land Grant, the, the Arclight Phoenix Buried Alive package. Faithless uh, Looting. Yeah, Young Pyromancer, things like that. Oh, Bedlam Reveler. That's why we were talking about it too, right? That was the number one pickup card from the deck. So that's super, super awesome. Kyle, congratulations. Uh, very well done. And then quick shout out to Platinum Pro, Lucas Esperberto, for recommending us as a podcast to listen to on Twitter. Yeah, I think our content actually has gotten a little bit better over time, right? We're like 14 episodes deep. And I'd hope so. <laughs> and I and I think since we've started, we've gotten a, just a better grasp of, well, it's not, it's not even just like the content that we're creating, but like the production behind it. Massive shout out to Phil at Force of Phil on Twitter for, you know, helping step in and help, uh, you know, just make this stuff phenomenal. Um, so, yeah. Hey, let's... Why, 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 no, no, wait. Why did you skip over the Wilson's Esports interest bullet point? Because we didn't want to talk about it. Okay, no, because actually quick. that was the this was the amazing setup. Like the this is this was the transition. I wanted to make it so that now every listener will remember that Wilson has an Esports interest. So. That's right, and when we timestamp for the actual content to start, it needs to be right before this, okay? Um, so yeah, so everybody, everybody listening probably knows my love of pinball. I am going to start some pinball streaming in my spare time pretty soon. But something I've gotten pretty into is some sort of alternative esports. One game that has interested me is called Killer Queen. So I would like to know if any of our listeners like the arcade game Killer Queen. It's a phenomenal tournament game. Very cool. It's five on five in person in arcades. There's like 40 locations in the U.S. People come. They get in this giant on this giant machine and they play this game called Killer Queen. It's really sweet. I've enjoyed watching it. Um, I've also been watching some speed runs of some interesting games like Dead Cells, which is a really cool indie game. And uh, yeah, I'm just sort of trying to expand my esports interests into different things. Learn more about what games are popular, what streamers are doing. I've really been enjoying myself with that. So thanks for letting me share, everybody. Nice. Let's dive into the feedback from the last episode because I know I know that a lot of our tribal enthusiasts had a lot to say about the the topics that we covered. So I'll start with uh, the first piece of feedback, which is from avid podcast listener and Twitch viewer Tuxdev, who is, uh, you know, as as we all know, the, the merfolk king i don't know definitely at, yeah definitely at the forefront of uh merfolk innovation so tuxdev was saying totally agree with bryant about lack of removal being a problem which is why during vegas i shifted my deck to include two main deck dismembers and four total in the 75 you don't like the benthic biomancers but they're very important to allow me to play somewhat situational cards like Dismember without getting super punished by having dead cards rotting in my hand forever. 
I actually uh, received this Merfolk, like Tuxdev's uh, updated Merfolk deck as a donation deck. And I got to play it through a league. I ended up going three and two. Um, but I had some pretty insane games against Eldrazi and Stoneblade. And in both of those games, Dismember was just actually so on point. Uh, there was just like a number of things that it allowed me to do, whether it was like racing or stopping, you know, GTA from connecting, things like that. So I really did like the the Dismembers. I don't know. The removal just felt pretty, pretty necessary as a whole. Um Benthic Biomancer was also pretty sweet, too. There was a game where I had, like, you know, Vile and then Chalice, and then I ended up drawing some dead one-drops that I, you know, like, did more extra Vials that I couldn't actually cast because of the Chalice, and Benthic Biomancer was able to loot it. Also, just being able to, um, I don't know, churn through the deck is kind of important. Like, Waterlog Grove was a nice addition to the deck. All in all, I do, I do think I agree. Or I did, I mean, like, the this is, this is kind of weird, but, like, for everyone who knows me, like, I play a lot of, you know, control decks, that don't have creatures that don't attack, and so this was sort of like a really nice, fresh change of pace. Chalice in the Void and one drops. It's just good deck building, in my opinion. Yeah, you want to know something crazy? I uh, I also I don't know. I was playing. I think the most interesting play for me, uh, one of one of the more interesting plays in my league, uh, was where I had like the turn one Aether Vial and turn two Chalice of the Void, and I ended up drawing. Um, a, th- a second Aether Vial for my draw step on the second turn. I actually ended up casting that second Aether Vial before playing Chalice, and I think that was a mistake, which is pretty crazy when you think about it, right? Like, there's, like, a weird, like, I don't know, like, balance between your, I don't know, prison pieces and your, your proactivity and things like that, and you want to get on the table ASAP, beat down, those sort of things. One thing that I did miss, though, in Tuxtev's list was that he was only playing, like, three true names. There were no Phantasmal Images. Brian, I remember you said you didn't like the Phantasmal Image, right? No, I wanted more of them. Oh, you did? Okay, never mind. Well, I, I definitely... Okay, well, that's awkward. But I, I definitely did miss uh, the fourth copy of True Name just for, like, the non-Plague Engineer matchups. And I guess... Uh, I don't know. I didn't really miss the Phantasmal images too much, but I guess if it's, like, extra copies of True Name, maybe that's, like, a good thing. Something to think about. So, Tuxtub's, uh comment on Reddit was actually very, very long. In fact... It- it's probably closer to a book than a comment. So we're only picking out two of the things that Tux have mentioned. The second would be Waterlog Groves plays around Choke, but they also play in a Wasteland and Blood Moon in a pretty big way, which I feel is generally more relevant. They're also very painful. Double Grove as your lands in your opener is especially awful. I don't want to mull away a functional hand if its lands are, you know, the Waterlog Groves. But if it's uncertain that it's a really functional hand and I'm eating half my life total away just trying to play a game that I've almost definitely lost to the likes of Delver because of the damage I took off of the Groves, I still have access to two of my lists, but after playing four for a while, I think it's actually too much, especially with the mana sync like Coral Helm Commander and making my otherwise access basics actually very decent. Oh my god, Coral Helm was so nuts. You just pump a couple mana into it, and then, like, I don't know, there's just, like, um, with these level-up mechanics, there's always, um, just, like, a sense of impending doom from the other side of the table, whereas, like, if you make your creature, like, if they actually are able to pump it up and stuff like that, it just very quickly escalates. I think the flying is absurdly relevant, and then, like, getting around Bolt via Lords and just, you know, leveling up in, in general. Coral Helm was, uh, pretty powerful. I was very impressed by that card. Also that harkens back secrets. to old school, right? Like, you guys played when Coral Helm was, like, the new thing on the block. I did. With Merfolk. So, harkens back to a... 
a simpler time. That's right, a simpler time. Cool. Yeah, I don't know. I do agree with the waterlogged uh, grove thing, by the way. Using it as a mana source, it's it's kind of weird because you don't have brainstorms and ponders in this blue deck, and so you kind of need your draws to like. I don't know. You don't get the to get. You don't get the advantage of mitigating the the bad side of variance, I guess. So your draws really do have to have like a very high floor, if it makes sense. You don't have like the the margin of error, or you can't really fix that margin of error. So if you if you do end up having like only waterlogged groves, you you end up taking a lot of damage, and it's kind of weird. Like sequencing your lands in Merfolk isn't as straightforward as I thought it would be. I mean, obviously, like it was my first time playing the deck, so. There's a little bit of nuances there. Um, I do like the Waterlog Grove just as like a, a sort of way to convert in the mid to late game when you've sort of traded resources off a lot and you're, you're you know, just both both players are top decking. So it's still, I think it's necessary to a degree, but I definitely don't want it to be my turn one land where I'm just like taking buttloads of damage only to die to a lightning bolt in a very close race or something like that. So, What about Lonely Sandbar? That card comes into play tapped, right? I thought, isn't that a card that you love? I do love it, but in a different context. I, I just wanted to say the card because I think I know how much you love it. Oh, okay, nice. I, I don't know. Lonely Sandbar is also just like a very poetic name. I just kind of like, I'll be walking on the street and I'll say, hey, Lonely Sandbar to myself in my head. Not really, but yeah. it's a cool card. Interesting. Okay, so our next comment is from Goblin Lackey 1. We really appreciate your comment, Goblin Lackey. Uh, it's, it's very well thought out, very well worded, but to save our listeners a little bit of time, I'm going to summarize. So Goblin Lackey 1 says that he hates Tarfire, and also is, is addressing this hatred directly to Bryant, likely because Bryant said something about Tarfire being good. Uh, the points around Tarfire being bad include that it was better because Deathrite Shaman needed to be dealt with back in the day. And if you are matroning for it just to kill an engineer, you're spending four mana because the matron isn't going to be there and it's very inefficient. And then Goblin Lackey 1 suggests Goblin Crater Maker is just a better effect and better uh, answer in terms of having a shock. So, Bryant, since this was directed at you by name, what are your thoughts on this? Well, we actually talked about Crater Maker being better than Tarfire, but I mentioned that I could see Tarfire as a supplement to enter to answer Plague Engineer. We were already talking about Maxion and Crater Makers. Okay, well, I didn't listen to the last episode, so I didn't really realize that. But uh, <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> Too busy you with the fish. Um, no, but but I mean, Goblin Lackey also mentioned that you know Tarfire doesn't really synergize with what uh, the new Goblin tools have been. They're pretty sweet, right? We talked about Sling Gang, Lieutenant, and uh, Trashmaster. The Trashmaster's kind of old, but Tarfire doesn't really work too well with those cards, and I could definitely see just, like, rather leveraging Go Goblin Crater Maker as um, a little bit chunkier version of the effect, but certainly more uh, broad, broader? Not more broad, but broader. So, yeah. I definitely do agree. I think I would rather just have Crater Makers than Tarfires. And if like there's some weird meta development, then maybe I'd look at Tarfire. But for now, I definitely I would definitely just like, you know, listen to the masters of the deck and say, like, if they say Tarfire sucks, they probably tried it and done the, you know, no need for us to reinvent the wheel. So that's. Yeah. And it looks like uh, we got two more comments. Uh, the first is by Reddit user Nargoyles, who, uh, you know, I think we've seen their name before. I think we are getting to the point where we are starting to recognize the strength of the London Mulligan. 
where linear combo decks have a better opportunity to assemble a win during mulligan decisions compared to the fair blue deck hands that may need a turn or two to assemble a reasonable hand. Hand disruption is incredibly strong right now, IMO. Do you agree with that, Brian? Yeah. I mean, we in the beginning of the last episode, I talked about how Miracles right now is a deck where you get rewarded for consistency, but you're not really gaining a whole lot compared to decks that don't have cantrips because they're just mulliganing into better hands right now. So it makes sense that the combo decks are the ones taking advantage at this very moment. But that said, I still think Miracles is pretty good against the combo decks, even though they have to spend a turn or two to sculpt their hand to beat these decks. Having access to six force wheels is just... puts fear in you that if you go for it, you're going to lose, knowing that they have a 60% chance in their opening hand to have a force. Yeah, I want to comment on the hand disruption is incredibly strong right now, IMO sentence. I agree, because if the better that London Mulligans are, and the more they are utilized, I should say, the better hand disruption is, because you want to trade just from a a math standpoint, you want to be trading resources, right? So people are going down on cards because they're seeing more, but the the total is obviously decreasing more often so that they can find the more powerful uh, individual cards. So yeah, I mean, logically, hand disruption is is very good and will probably continue to be very good in Legacy moving forward because of Lemon Mall. Yeah, I mean, it's also the fact that when you do mulligan, you know, down to your six or five or whatever it is, your hand is certainly much more concentrated in terms of what you want to be doing. So I think when I hear like London Mulligan and linear combo deck, I think maybe like Dark Depths is the first thing that comes to my mind in terms of, um, you know, like a combo deck that really benefits from the London Mulligan. Black they Red have, Reanimator. That's another one too, yeah. Uh, both of these decks have very, I would call them pretty explosive starts, right? Like, uh, you know, even like a turn one Elvish Reclaimer from the from the Dark Depth side is, is is still pretty powerful, right? It just gives the deck so much versatility, and hitting hitting the that engine of the deck is pretty necessary. So, I don't know that that is one thing. And then, you know, in response, like if if your opponent is mulliganing to these clutch cards, you know, being able to take them away is sort of just it does de-emphasize the power of the mulligan. So, I don't know. Yeah, disruption, hand attacking the hand, Thoughtseize. Good. To preface our last comment, we had someone that was acting a little bit like a turd on our Reddit thread. And follower and friend of the cast, Dugues, had this to say If tribal sucks, then you're tribal. Hey. <laughs> I appreciate that because that was directed at the Eddie Bryant and Anurag cast. So, uh, hey, I like this comment. Nice. All right, so let's talk about this week's topic. This upcoming weekend, there are two huge events online. Actually, this whole month has a smattering of big legacy events. So this week, we have the Legacy Mocks, right? And the Legacy Quarterly Playoffs. So just for uh, as a reminder, this is one way that you can qualify for uh, the next or one of the Mythic Championships that are coming up. Uh, the Quarterly Playoff, you can enter with 35 I think it's like legacy format points that you get for playing in leagues and challenges throughout the year. If you top eight this event, you get invited to a special 32-person event, and the winner of this 32-player event in January qualifies for the pro- uh, sorry the Mythic Championship. So that's that's happening this weekend, the third format playoff. 
Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the metagame and I guess just our thoughts. I also forgot to mention it. We've got SCG Syracuse coming up. I don't think it's this weekend, but it's next weekend, right, Brian? Correct. And then we have Grand Prix Atlanta. Magic the- Fest. Well, it's okay. Magic Fest Atlanta featuring Grand Prix Atlanta um, the week after. So that's pretty exciting. Did you know that there are four legacy PTQs in Atlanta that weekend? What? Yeah, I know. It's insane. So like if if for your, you know, some unfortunate reason you're unable to play in the main event on Saturday, I believe there are two on Friday. There's one and on Sunday. I think there's another one. Uh, It's all on the the WOTC scheduling website thingy. So I mean. Double check and confirm. I'm not 100% certain on my end, but I know there's a, a bunch of legacy PTQs or MCQs. I'm sorry. I, this naming convention is going to throw me off forever. Well, me I will definitely to... be playing in one Magic Championship qualifier on Friday morning. I'm landing in Atlanta at 8 a.m. and just going straight to the convention center and signing up. So if you're there, come say hi. Nice. But before we get into that, let's talk about this weekend. So what's currently popular? This is the first section of the day. What is currently popular in, in the legacy meta? So most of our numbers are taken from MTG Goldfish for what it's worth. But as of right now, if you combine Four Color Delver with Rug Delver, it's at a whopping 9%, which is the most popular deck in the metagame. And personally, I've faced, since the London Mulligan went into existence, I've played 44 matches against Rugdelver, which is by far the most I've faced against any decks. Uh, the second, there's actually a tie for the second most popular, it's Reanimator and Ad Nauseam Tendrils. And when you compare Rugdelver to Four Color Delver, I've only faced Four Color Delver 21 times, so it's more than double. And most of these matches are recently, so if you play online right now, if you play a five-match league, you're most likely going to face both Rug Delver and Black Red Reanimator. They're just all over the place. And I think something that I like recently is Wilson's favorite creature, Hex Drinker, is starting to see a little bit more play. Hey, I remember, Wilson, you, you mentioned that you were going to try like Hex Drinker in the Green Sun Zenith slash, uh, what was it, like Maverick Shell? Uh, it's interesting to see that these Delver decks are picking up Hex Drinker as a one mana two one. Yeah, this is pretty cool. I'm looking at a list right now, Legacy Challenge list by Storbo One that has three Hex Drinkers. So the curve is pretty sweet. When you have four Delvers, three Hex Drinkers, you can get that threat down quickly. And mana sinks and magic in general, uh, particularly with a deck like this. I just feel like it probably plays up real. I, I obviously have no testing with this with this deck, but yeah. But the uh, general principle seems pretty nuts, right? Like, let's say your hand has like two pieces of permission. You've got three lands in play. You can actually use all your mana that turn, like tap one land, hold up your two pieces of permission, or whatever combination it might be. And you know the 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 level, I guess, two mode or whatever it is, where it's a four four with protection from instance, is actually surprisingly like very tough to deal with. I mean. Yes, it's four four, which is better than the three three of Nimble Mongoose, uh, but and and it, like technically Tarmogoyf still you know can tech, sit in the way of it as a four five or whatever it is. But I think as a one mana threat that can upgrade to a four four, that's huge. And not being able to die to Bolt, Plow, or Decay, which are probably like the most common forms of removal push, I guess too. Um, at that stage, is I think that sort of resilience is extremely powerful, and I'm glad that the card is finally seeing a lot of play. 
I bet the level up was a green mana at some point in developing the card and testing the card. I'm glad that they decided to push it and make it a colorless because it lets us uh, see the card played in a deck like this. Otherwise, I don't think you'd see it. By the way, Anurag, in this list I'm looking at, mm-hmm. they have a single Lonely Sandbar. Hey, oh, yeah, yeah. Lonely Sandbar is a card that's been seeing a lot more play that and the, the Cycle Lands and Water logged grove and fiery eyelid the combination between that card all these like you know draw card lands and red and six is just it's very easy to uh snowball a lead and just take over the game very very fast uh there are a couple innovations to these decks uh these delver decks in recent that i think we should we should take a look at so if you are Uh, playing this weekend with hex drinker how concerned are you about red and six coming down on turn two and shooting your drinker I think that's a great point. That is a concern, right? But it's better in this deck than a lot of others when you have that free counter magic backing up your plays, um, which makes those one-drop plays really strong. I would say the downside is just like Delver of Secrets. So if you think that that's a significant negative for the archetype in general, then you probably have a point. But, I mean, people are already just trying to jam their turn one Delver on the draw. Um, So... I guess yeah. the goal is to have protection. Go on. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with uh, Wilson on that point. The the X1 body does matter a lot, but between the dazes and, and the force of wills and things like that, I, I'm i inclined to believe that Hex Drinker is still fine as a turn one play. I feel like and this is just maybe like a personal aside and that we might get into it, but there are two reasons why... Uh, two two reasons, two thoughts in my head. The first is, I feel like Red and Six is not as powerful as it was when it first came out. This may be just that people have played with it and against it and have learned to adapt to it or, or maximize it or whatever it is. Like, I guess you're just finding the cards that beat it and the strategies that beat it. And then the the second issue is, I also feel like the card is like super expensive on Magic Online. Probably one of the more expensive cards is like over a hundred tickets or something like that. So you don't actually get to see too much Red and Six in the leagues as you're playing. Um, and I wonder if that has anything to do with, uh, like the prevalence of a card like Hex Drinker, which is an X one that does look bad in the face of Run in Six, but it's still like, I mean, it really just depends what you're battling against, right? Like, I don't know. There's a, when you're collecting data, we talked about this a long time ago, but there's so much, like so many nuances and things like that, like in terms of like matchup, matchup recording and data and things like that. Anyways, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, what I did want to talk about though, was some of the new innovations that we've been seeing um in 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 the delver decks and i think it's pretty clear what these innovations are targeted at beating uh lately we've seen the dark depth strategies really emerge from i don't know i guess haha the depths but uh delver in my opinion doesn't necessarily have the easiest time with with these merit lodge decks and the reason is is just mostly because lightning bolt doesn't really line up well against indestructible 2020 you know, kill you in one shot sort of deal. Like, yes, the deck does have Wasteland and the deck can like chump block with Delver and try to race and things like that. But I don't think at its core, that's like really where you want to be, where your removal doesn't necessarily line up. So the first item that I want to talk about is Crop Rotation. Crop Rotation is a card that's been seeing a little bit of play in these Delver decks. What do you think about these cards? These cards, as in Crop Rotation? Sorry, yeah. Yeah, this card, Crop Rotation. Crap rotation? Uh, Ooh, yeah, okay. I, I, so, here's the thing. 
Well, you, if you, you guys are telling me that these decks are playing a single crop rotation, correct? I do. And a, yeah. And a suite of lands to go along with that. So I'm, I'm seeing here not only a Caracas and your set of Wastelands, but a Bajookabog. Well, not every list plays Bajookabog. I've seen a couple with it. Okay. The Krakus is definitely more standard, though. Right. It's, you know, Infect did this for a long time, and it's better in Infect because it's like the fifth Ink Moth Nexus, which is another threat. But I always felt like even in that deck, you end up being tempted into wasting the val- the value of certain slots for a toolbox that is really a single card being your toolbox. So, like, I, I just... I just think that you're not getting much value uh, value there. So I guess if your whole goal is to say I have two Croxes in my deck and five Wastelands, I don't know. It's just, it's sort of cute. I don't like that if we're saying that Delver's also the most played deck, it's a really, really bad card in these mirror matches, I think. I would agree um, with that. Yeah, that's so. interesting. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's a response to the meta that we're talking about, and if you have problems with those decks, to be honest, this is where I just, I personally, as somebody who doesn't like sticking with the same deck, it, it gets into sort of the range of, if this is what you're doing, which is sort of, you know, it's getting sort of out there, maybe maybe this isn't the deck you should be playing. Like, if you're going this far to beat one strategy is giving you a hard time, I would start looking at other decks to play in the meta so but, uh, that, that's just me i have two thoughts one is i mean i'm not trying to defend crop rotation because i don't think it belongs in double decks but it also gets fiery islet so that way you can sacrifice it and return it with ren so if you're only playing one islet you're able to tutor it up to give your ren and six a little bit more of an advantage but this is a super grindy plan in a i mean rug delver is a tempo deck if you're trying to argue with me that it's not you're a crazy person. But I do get that it gives you a better late game, which is something that Rogue Delver has struggled with. I just don't know if it's necessary. I imagine that Ren and Six will close out the game once you ultimate. I don't know if you necessarily need to be sacrificing your land drops every turn to draw a card. And then the second thing was, if you're really, really looking for an answer to Dark Depths, Vapor Snag exists. It's a tempo card. It actually deals your opponent a loss of life. I was going to say damage and then corrected myself, but it's actually very relevant. And I think Vapor Snag is a fine card to run in these style of decks. Yeah, one card. Anurag, oh yeah, go ahead. I say, Anurag, would you ever crop rotate for a lonely sandbar and waste it and then return it and start cycling? I have thought about this idea, and I have thought about this idea with something like Zurn Orb as well, for example. And I have not. Oh yet, goodness! I have not yet executed on this thought. So, so uh, you're deep in the tank. I'm always deep in the tank. I told you I went snorkeling, right? We went really far out um, to the point. <laughs> Do you know how bad beats like a, a burn player, the story they'd be telling their buddies if they ran into a Zurin orb out of a, out of a rug delver sideboard. That, that would be sad. mighty unfortunate. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know, but one card that I was kind of interested in as well, uh, that Brian has mentioned in the show notes is submerge. And I, I understand why this card in my mind, okay, let me be honest, all right? I actually think the crop rotation package is a little bit better than Submerge. What? Yes. Yeah. You're drunk. No, no, no. Because I feel like Dark Depths players, like, I've seen, I've seen like, the best players play the deck. If, if you've ever watched, like, Negator 77 play it, right? If, if Tom Shout doesn't... Shout out to Tom Hap. Yeah, yeah. If Tom doesn't want to lose to Submerge, 
like you can make submerge look like a really really bad card right um i think it's something that you can much more easily play around than like crop rotation into like a wasteland or a Caracas. it's also not exactly the same slot right like submerge is a sideboard card we're saying crop rotation is a main deckable singleton right but also you would have to assume that your, your opponent knows about submerge right like, are you just always going to play around Submerge and possibly lose the game because you're playing around a card your opponent doesn't have? It 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 can probably be reasonably played around by really good players, but but I I do think a relevant point that Brian that you could be partially making is there may be what five Dark Depths players that are playing at such an optimal level that they're like always making the free play around Submerge play because they play so much of the deck, like at a at a Magic Fest Grand Prix, how many of the Depths players are going to be consistently playing around the Submerge? I mean, I, no no offense to Magic players, it's just like, that's pretty, that takes a lot of practice to sort of have that second nature when you're trying to focus on everything else. But I do think that the Vapor Snag is a great point, right? Because that just does its job very well, so... Just a random aside, when you go to a Grand Prix, do you ever prep for specific players? What? Why on earth would you do that? Just a thought. I know there are some events like on the on the East Coast, like maybe smaller events, not a Grand Prix, but like when I go in there, I'm like, all right, am I going to worry about lands today? And then I look at in the room and I see it's like, is Dave Long in this room? No. Okay, fine. I'm not going to worry about it. There Dude, was that's... a period a couple years ago where if I was going to a Star City Open in the DC Baltimore area, where I would play an extra bounce spell on my board just because the concentration of lands players there was so much higher there than anywhere else in the country. But it wasn't due to a specific player. It was 10 to 20 more players. Yeah. Just a thought. I don't know. Uh, there are some some players that I am absolutely terrified of. And generally speaking, my experience... I don't know. It's weird because like... And this is just like nuance and like attention. So, you know, excuse me for this, but I've played against a couple players like one on one so many times online that like when I play against them in paper, like I think I would actually default to how I adjusted my gameplay in those practice games and apply it in, in, in practice, even though I wouldn't necessarily play that way against like a bunch of other people. So it's just like I'm thinking about how you're Wilson saying like there are five players in the room that might, you know, make look that might make submerge look really, really silly. You know, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, I will say as a, I sort of do the opposite. If I know what Bob Huang is playing, I I know one less deck that I'll have to see in the winner's bracket. Hey, I'm dabbing right now. Uh, but yeah, so so I guess one thing that I want to ask is, so we we've identified that you know Delver is a, I mean, a, the one of the forefront leaders on MTG Goldfish, uh, four color and rug. I guess the difference between these two decks is what the inclusion of Thoughtseize and Abrupt Decay and then maybe like sideboard you've got like or and Plague Engineer, right? Those would be like the three critical cards and the mana base, right? Um, which version would you take to a Grand Prix if you if you had the option between the two? Hands down Rug Delver. Not even close. Yeah. Wilson, what about you? I'll go with that. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat, and I, I'm going to guess that we all have the same answer, and just that the the mana base being too volatile in the four color Delver deck is it's also just so much more consistent and right. better at doing its plan. You're not sometimes playing a mid range deck, and then sometimes playing a tempo deck, and then the awkward draws where you get a little bit of both plans. There are some options for the threat base 
as I'm looking through all these lists, like I, I see some mongoose in here, and then I see the hex drinker lists. I see one hooting mandrels in some lists. I do think it's interesting. We're we're in an era where it's not quite as copy and paste in terms of what you're bringing with your Delver deck. I think there's a, a few options for people. Yeah, that's pretty exciting and also kind of terrifying because if you're sitting across the table and your opponent goes turn one Tropical Island, Delver, you don't know whether you're supposed to immediately crack your Feshland or, or not, that kind of deal. You know what I mean? So um, that's that's very interesting. Probably adds a little bit more power to the deck. Um, Why don't we talk about another green deck? Sure. Depths. Both the Hogak version and just your standard black-green depths. But they're at 7% uh, according to MTG Goldfish. I'm actually really excited to talk about this topic. I have a very good friend of mine, Colin Chilbert, who's actually a original administrator of MTG The Source. He and I were, had a pretty good conversation the other night about returning to Turbo Depths. And Turbo Depths is good right now, at least in my opinion. Because no one's expecting it. If you pass on turn two with a stage and a uh, Dark Depths in play, there's zero chance they're going to respect you making a 2020 on their end step. Absolute zero. And on top of that, you can get people that might tap their Krakus for a turn because they think that you don't have it. You have a higher green count for Force of Vigor due to Elvish Spirit Guides and more copies of Sylvan Scrying. Those sort of things. Uh, on top of that, there's very few edict effects play, seen play right now, which I think makes the importance of Sylvan Safekeeper go through the roof. And Turbo Depths is usually the one that plays the most copies of Sylvan Safekeeper, usually around three. And on right. top of that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying, can you break down for our listener, you know, so you're going through some of your thoughts there. When you say Turbo and when you say our, the players won't expect the depths, what are... Like, why is that? What are some cards uh, that come into play in Turbo and, and not other versions uh, where you could make that fast that fast merit ledge unexpectedly? That's a pretty good point, Wilson. So the Turbo Depths list plays copies of Lotus Petal, which they will see. But on top of that, they play Elvish Spirit Guide, which is an instant speed hidden mana source. So if your opponent, for some reason, taps Caracas and you only have two lands in play, uh, with your stage, whatever, you can exile an Elvish Spirit Guide for that second mana source, activate your uh, Thespian stage, copy your Dark Depths, make a Merit Lage. Thank hidden, you. Sorry. Hidden information. Yeah, I mean, there's some other nuances to Turbo Depths that you might be able to include in that list. Like, I think Main Deck Pithy Needle is another card. Not of this world if we're looking at certain variations or if the meta is in a certain you know position. I was actually just going to talk about Pithy Needle on Rock. I think that it's the best answer for fighting back against Caracas, which is the big card that's come out to answer Merit Lage in the last two weeks. So if you're playing Pithy Needle, you just shut down the number one answer to bouncing your 2020 Flying Indestructible. But it's also a backup answer to Renin 6. Would you play something like Not of This World? No, I think that card's a little too cute, and it doesn't actually do anything. But I'm also a little bit worried about it not being a green card. Well, I think one of the benefits of Turbo is getting to play two to three copies of Force of Vigor for the Blood Moon matchups, which we'll talk about later. Bryant, when when you say Pithing Needle for Renin 6, are you actually needling the Renin 6, or are you needling the Wasteland? It's a good point. I guess it would come down to game state, but most likely you'd name Wasteland. I could be wrong. 
Yeah, so your Renin 6 would kill your Hex Mages, which is kind of like a wash because Hex Mage would then just kill the Renin 6 or make a 20-20, and then you could ping down to kill Safekeeper. That's kind of obnoxious. Either way, I'd probably still name... Yeah, I'd probably still name Wasteland, but stopping the Recursion is still extremely relevant. Uh, or just even stopping them from... Well, I guess if you name Renin 6, you will stop their mana development, which is kind of important. That's a good one question. of the things about the uh, black green turbo depths list is they play three to four copies of Pithy Needle. Something I've always questioned is when the player plays a second copy of Pithy Needle, do you name the card again? Because I've seen people name Wasteland twice, or like I don't know if that's always the correct decision. It's really tough to tell. Sure, I mean I'd say that's totally matchup dependent, right? And unfortunately, right now it can be difficult to guess. But if you're playing against Rug Delver. There's, you know, you can name a couple different cards, I would guess, right? So if the first is Wasteland, the second's probably Ren and Six, or maybe you've, <laughs> you you get some good call and a fetch. The black version, when you have the uh, potential answers to permanence, you know, it may be strong enough for you to have a couple on, on Wasteland, potentially. Um, but that's one of those pretty skill-intensive cards, right? Because then post-sideboard matches, you get into a lot of crazy things like <laughs> there's engineered explosives and legacy which can really get you um just a lot of stuff going on but let's talk about the more popular versions at the moment because i know turbo depths is the least popular right now there's hogak depths which i think has suffered a lot recently due to Krakus coming to see play wilson i know that you were pretty high on depths the last time you were on roughly a month ago are you still feeling pretty good about hogak I'm not feeling as good about Hogak, largely because of the points about Caracas and the ways in which people are trying to attack Depths also go in and uh, attack Hogak as well. So I'm lower on Hogak. I'm still pretty high on Depths, and I, I like Depths in general as a strategy. Yeah, I, I gotta ask you one question uh, real quick, just as a, as a tangent. Does the Turbo Depths deck play Elvish Reclaimer? Not that I've seen. Okay. But there is potential innovation or slot for innovation, including or involving like this hodgepodge of cards, uh, just like Reclaimer, Lotus Petal, Spirit Guide, that sort of thing, all of that stuff together. Okay. Um, just a random thought. I don't know. I, I also agree that the Hogak variation seems to have slowly phased out back to. Uh, favor back in favor of like the you know the sylvan safekeeper mox diamond whatever you have it variations there's um, one thing i really don't like about those versions i don't think that dark confidant is where you would like to be anymore dark confidant is super good in a metagame where everyone decides to play fair and i don't think that's where legacy is at at the moment if you look at the top decks they're unfair you have reanimator you have ant you have rug delver you don't want to be playing Dark Confidant against Rug Delver. And I know that Rug Delver is a fair deck, but the way that it attacks you makes Dark Confidant very poor. And then you have Stoneblade, which it, it's hard to like put yourself in a position where Dark Confidant isn't good there. But I think it's like one out of the top six decks that Dark Confidant is actually good against. So if I was playing the black-green mid-range depths, I would find a different card to play over Dark Confidant. It is atrocious against Ren and Six, right? So, I mean, there's just the fact of of the popularity of that card in the most played deck 
and you're adding this into a deck that is largely generally doesn't care about that part of of the deck. Obviously, you care a lot about wasteland, um, but just the the grindy creature killing non wasteland returning part of it. It just makes no sense why you would add that to your deck, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, so Bob won a challenge, uh, a couple not a challenge. He won like one of the classics. Dark Confidant or, or Hong? Oh, uh, but yeah, Bob Wong. He won uh, one of the classics. Was Bob playing Bob? He was. He was playing Bob, but he wasn't playing the full set. He was playing four Reclaimers and two Confidants, and I really like that. I imagine like at this point that maybe he would even be playing like zero Confidants. I think. I just think that um, Reclaimer has sort of taken that Dark Confidant slot. Like, not only is it resilient to Red and Six, because it's got two toughness by default, but if you get a couple lands in the graveyard, suddenly it's a 3-4 and this Delbertex can't bolt it. I think also um, that in a format where it's not really about, like, you, Bryant, you were mentioning, that it's, it's, it's not really a fair format right now. Elvish, Elvish Reclaimer is kind of a... It's like a mix between the two, right? Like, it can be a 3-4 that beats down and, like, gets you, you know, value lands or whatever. But it's also just a consistent crop rotation machine that will tutor up your combo, you know, faster, right? It does give you a little bit of consistency. So I think in in that regard, you know, I see very little reason not to be playing four Reclaimer in, in any depth stack. And I think um, you could even get away with zero confidant if you've got the full four for uh, reclaimers so there's something guys... i'd like to point out about reclaimer and i think it gets lost a lot so i've seen this a couple times on people's streams they forget that with reclaimer the land comes into play tapped which means that if you need that thespian stage you have to wait an entire turn to activate it and people end up playing around this card that doesn't actually kill them on the spot yeah, that's that's true. I think um, in general, like the 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 most natural sequence to me would be, you know, play your reclaimer. Okay, untap, activate it, get your thespian stage. Then that untaps, and then you activate it again. You get the dark depths that comes into play tap, but you can use the thespian stage to copy it because it doesn't matter with whether dark depths is tapped or untapped or whatever it is. So uh, that's that's probably the like the sequencing that I would take, and then you know adjust accordingly to whatever kind of hate your opponent might have. That's a, in a perfect world, that's not as fast as it sounds, though, because you still need mana to activate your Thespian stage. And with Reclaimer, you have to sacrifice a land. So if you go turn one Reclaimer into those pieces, you don't have mana to activate it unless you have like the nuts double Mox Diamond hand. Yeah. I, don't know, I wish I could pinpoint why, but I just I have this weird feeling in the back of my mind, like my gut just says that. Dark Depths is not really where I want to be, though. Like, in, in in comparison to a deck like Rug Delver, for example, right? Like, I think Rug Delver is pretty hot fire, and I think they're... I mean, it does have some holes, but that being said, I think it's just, like, all around, like, a pretty good deck, the current iteration. But I, I, I don't know. I feel like Dark Depths just... It just feels like... It, it feels a little linear and if people like are are willing to you know change their sideboards to handle it that they can for example right one card that i've been playing a lot with lately is i guess humility but maybe that that uh i mean that's going to be all shades of 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 dark depths if you can get into play right but maybe the current iterations are slow enough where humility can get in play whereas something like like you're mentioning you know the turbo depths variation is like faster fast enough to not make the deck susceptible to these like clunkier blowout cards but i'm wondering if there are any other you know other all in all like i want to say cards that are just really good at beating depths like is would you consider blood moon a kind of card that could uh beat the the 
the depth deck kind of torn. I think it's card. super risky, yeah. especially in a world with force of vigor. Mm-hmm. Which let's use this to transition into one of our next decks, which is Mono Red Prison, aka Dragon Stumpy. And I think if you're playing the Dragon Stompy deck, it's actually very, very good against the Black Green Depths list in general. But I think if I was playing them, I would emphasize Magus of the Moon over Blood Moon on turn one, just because it doesn't get hit by Force of Vigor in post-board games. There's actually very few ways for the Black Green Depths deck to remove Magus of the Moon in period. So if you can play a turn one Magus, that's what I would go for. What is it just like? The four Rupticase and maybe one trophy? I don't even know if they're playing five. I could be wrong. Okay. The list I was looking at recently, I've seen as few as three copies of a Rupticase. Yeah. Just real quick, going back to my depth thought, if I'm unable to actually put it into words why I don't like the deck or why I think it's a little bit soft right now, then I guess maybe that means that it's not as or in the position that I think it's in. I don't know. Me particularly... We'll we'll come back to this later. If I suddenly have like a eureka moment, then I'll I'll just you know scream eureka in the middle of uh, whatever you guys are saying. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, modern modern red seems pretty cool. Um, I do know. Remember, like there was like a a PTQ or, or MCQ or some event a couple weeks ago where it just absolutely obliterated the event and had three copies in the top eight and. I think while it was a good pick for that event, I am not so sure if I would want to play it this weekend in the format playoffs. I think you're wrong. Interesting. I, Why? Think, I think that Mono Red Prison has a great matchup versus almost all of the top decks at the moment, with the exception of being blue-white bladeless. So if you list off Reanimator, Ad Nauseam Tendrils, uh, the Depths decks, Rug Delver, Four Color Control, and I'm not super confident in this last one, so friends of the podcast, feel free to tell me I'm an idiot, but sneak and show. So these are what I consider to be the top decks at the moment, and really when you break it down, I think Blue White Blade is the only one with a super favorable matchup against Red Prison. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I kind of feel like for decks like Delver, it's, it is kind of play draw dependent, like whether or not you're able to stop that turn one threat uh, so you can put your own creature into play kind of deal i feel like here's one thing that i've learned having played with miracles or like you know all these control variations against mono red is that creatures like tarmogoyf just absolutely smash the deck so hard well they 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 help the deck a lot because suddenly like i mean the primary um what am i trying to say the primary piece of advantage or the reason that i personally have found you know uh mono red to be doing so well is that not only are they able to put like a lock piece into play but immediately after they are so consistently able to put a four mana planeswalker into play and if you have like a creature already in play like a tarmogoyf or uh you know like a flip delver or something like that the suddenly the karn and the chandra are a little bit less potent i don't know if you're able to go wide or anything like that not, not there's not really a creature speed but like true name for example that's a really really strong threat that you know makes chandra and karn look very medium um so uh, a couple counterpoints one i think the play draw thing is only really relevant if the temple or delver player knows that they're facing red prison because i think games how they naturally play out would be very different if the red prison player was unknown so that that would be good for like game one where you you know, you you don't really know what's going on, but in post board games, I I would have to. I'd imagine that the Delver player or the the other player, the Tempo player, would know 
Um, but I'd also even argue that in a world where it is unknown, if you look at these Delver decks, right, like they have the one, they have the four Force of Wills, but they're also packing like one Force of Negation. So that bumps the percentage chance of having the uh, the turn zero counter from like, what, 40% to maybe 50%, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't, I mean, I'm, I haven't seen Force of Negation in almost any main deck of Delver. Correct me if I'm just, you know, not seeing them, but it seems like it's not really that popular right now. But you also mentioned True Name Nemesis. If your opponent's casting True Name Nemesis, you've probably already lost the game. If you're the Red Prison deck and you haven't gotten your pieces into play and True Name comes down and all that stuff, I feel like you haven't done your job and you probably weren't going to win that game anyway. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty fair. Maybe Mono Red is better than I give it credit for. For some reason, I just kind of feel like the format is just like got a lot of scary creatures that come into play and and can punish you know all the chunky four mana planeswalkers and that also you know decks like stoneblade are they've been picking up in popularity i know in like the mcq in vegas uh that happened uh maybe the week before last that uh blade and black raider reanimated were everywhere at the top tables and so i don't know if that's a a good thing or a bad thing for for mono red but that's a perfect transition anu good job um black red reanimator is another deck that's been hitting hard whoa wait are you transitioning i didn't get to say a word about mono red stompy and you're trying to go into black red reanimator yeah no let's rewind the tape for a second i'm very passionate about this deck i am considering playing mono red prison at some of these upcoming legacy events that's how excited i am about this deck right now seems in your wheelhouse (laughs) thank you i guess I also haven't been able to play as much Legacy as everybody here, and it has a fairly straightforward game plan. But what is interesting about the deck is I think there's a there are a lot of decisions in the deck building. There's a lot of different ways of approaching the deck. So, for example, I see a third place from the Richmond Classic recently that has 13 4-drops and 0 of the token-making goblins. And it has three Trinospheres, three Ensnaring Bridge. I mean, you can build this deck totally different from this, a four Abrade in this deck. Um, I was going to secretly hold on to Abrade until cards we recommend. I think that's how the Red Prison deck fixes the Stoneblade matchup. Oh, snap. But my, the point is, too, is like, what do you guys, do you think that the Karn, in terms of the two, Karn the Great Creator, is basically a lock? Like, you have to play four of that card? I think red? you could play three. Okay. So, I know a local Mono Red Prison player who is a little bit torn at the moment about Fiery Confluence versus the new Chandra uh, Awakened something or other. But the, Inferno. I've seen it a little bit online. Awakened Inferno where you're not sure if you want to be playing Chandra Awakened Inferno or Fiery Confluence. And it really comes down to, is this person says that casting Chandra after a Blood Moon is pretty much impossible. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a six-mana Chandra. <laughs> so, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Karn just feels like, all in all, like a really good utility utility card in this kind of deck because i mean you are a prison deck there are so many good prison artifacts that you probably have a bunch of in your sideboard like maybe the fourth copy of trinosphere or the fourth ensnaring bridge or whatever it is you know things like that uh i probably wouldn't want to leave without four cards because i want to keep my deck as consistent as possible and i mean obviously the lattice lock is pretty nuts and having you know extra copies of karn 
helps with that. Um, not only just getting it into play, but also, you know, keeping it. That makes sense. Stuff, so, yeah. can I throw out my my opinion? Because I, I have to say, it keeps seeing like seeming like you're going to skip over me here on a rug. Um, but uh, did you guys mention ensnaring bridge when you were talking about this deck a few minutes ago? We have not. I didn't think so. So I believe that ensnaring bridge is incredibly good right now. It addresses a couple of the normal creatures that were brought up, such as Anurag bring up how good Tarmogoyf is against this type of strategy. But we just talked about how good Depths is, right? So Ensnaring Bridge, both having copies in your deck, but also being able to get them with Karn, I think it's a total game changer for this deck. Because it is so good, I don't think Trinisphere is very good. You can only have so many cards that do nothing. The worst part of the deck is just flooding out on these cards that do nothing. Uh, and when I say do nothing, I mean just like maybe our lock pieces or what have you, and then you're not actually advancing your win. Um, but I love Ensnaring Bridge, and therefore I would prioritize it over Trinisphere and, and definitely have some threats in there, like some of the Goblin guys, uh, to, to kill your opponent. So. All right, it's worth noting that Bridge is also good against Reanimator and Sneak and Chill, which are both very popular at the moment. Yes, absolutely. I think it's really important against Sneak and Chill. Like, not only is it good, it's important to have that game plan against that deck. Otherwise, I don't really like to be this prison deck. And it's, it's sort of coin flippy, but I still don't like the matchup if you don't have access to a bunch of bridges. Okay, I think we're finally allowed to go to Black Red Green. Okay, yeah, yeah, is that you, okay you, with you, you Wilson? Yeah, that's that's fine. <laughs> Are you sure? Okay, all right, excellent. So. Black Red Reanimator, aka the EW Landon Baby. This deck, I don't know why, I can't explain what happened, but I am seeing this deck so much more in paper and so much more online. Um why what 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 makes this deck suddenly so good? So I think there's two different things. One, people are getting louder about how good the deck is. Post London Mole, everyone was like, hey, it got better. You know, so be it. And then we didn't really hear about it for a couple of weeks. And then voices got louder and louder about how good this deck is. And more and more people decided to return to Black Red Reanimator. And I think part of the reason why that is, is that the deck doesn't care about Renin 6. And it doesn't give a crap about Plague Engineer. And if your deck doesn't care about either of those, it's likely to be pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that might just be like a general trend for combo in general, the way that you don't care about the Ren and Six, you don't care about the Engineer, so you might be, you know, combo combo did do very well in the last challenge. Like, I was scrolling down the list, and literally all I could see was combo here, combo there, combo everywhere. Um, I, I think one reason that I... I'm a little bit wary about Black Red Reanimator, and I guess this is just like, this whole episode, I've sort of been like pessimistic about all these decks but the reason that i'm like meh about black red reanimator i know eric said that the, the delver matchup is a little bit stressful and so uh, i don't know um i think he had returned to a couple of his older pieces of technology like magus of the moon for example um i, I don't know Del delver delver seems to be the anti-combo deck in general leveraging cards like days and spell pierce to interact pretty early with uh with uh a fast can clock. i pause you for a second yeah it seems really interesting, meaning I don't know how true this is, but interesting that Eric would return to Magus of the Moon against the Lightning Bolt deck, 
because I don't think it's safe to assume that your opponent would board off their copies of Lightning Bolt just because you play. I mean, most of the reanimator lists that I'm seeing nowadays do play Thoughtseize where pre-London Mulligan they were not. So now you're running Thoughtseize, Reanimate, and Gristlebrand. Your life total does get really, really low. And Lightning Bolt could just accidentally finish off your opponent. Um, I might be wrong about this, and Eric, if I am wrong, please shout at me, and please, you know, just give me what your clean thoughts are, but the fact that Magus is a three-mana spell, it's, my, my issue with, my issue with Blackbird Reanimator is that it's, it's kind of all in at times, and so part of the reason, or part of the ways that I would personally go about fixing the deck is just, like, making it so that you don't have to, like, like if if someone casts a surgical, you don't get completely blown out. You know what I'm saying? Like, so that means that like making your threats somewhat castable um, is is like a really good point. I know this was what Eric was doing earlier with like the uh, Grave Titan, for example, and Lake of the Dead, where you just start like hard casting your Grave Titans, and like they had to basically force it, um, and they couldn't rely on cards like surgical extraction. I think Magus of the Moon is something like that, while also being good against like the depth decks, for example. Uh, I know that it's not popular anymore, but that's part of the reason why Sire of Insanity was a four of in the first reanimator list, because you could hard cast it if the reanimator plan didn't work and eventually they moved away from Sire. But that was a big benefit of the first list. Yeah. I don't remember the last time Eric has played Sire. I don't I, I don't think that card is good enough for I'd, him, but yeah, I don't think it's good enough in general. Yeah. Age and so many other things. Yeah. But another reason why I think that Black Red Reanimator is fairly good right now is that there's such a lack of control decks in the metagame. If you take away Rug Delver, there's not really a whole lot. I mean, Stoneblade, there's 2.5%, and then you have four color control just underneath that. But I think there's a very few decks right now that are playing Force of Will that are seeing a lot of play. And we're seeing a lot more like mid rangey prison type decks. And Black Red tends to prey on these decks. But on top of that, there's an increase in opposing combo. So specifically Ad Nauseam Tendrils, where Black Red Reanimator kind of just preys on Ad Nauseam Tendrils. It's such a good matchup for them. And in my opinion, that's what really makes Black Red a good choice, is that these prison decks don't play force. You're better against the other combo decks. I mean, you're probably right that it's not favored against Delver, but I can't imagine that you're a dog either. And against the Turbo Depth stacks, you have Tide Spout Tyrant. Card is nuts. Yeah, that is true. This could be like a level two deck, right? Or, le- or level, well, maybe like a level three deck even. So level one would just be what you play like Renin Six and Plague Engineer. So this is like your Rug Delver and your four color control. Level two is going to be the decks that just sort of laugh at uh, Plague Engineer and Renin Six. So you're I'm talking like Sneak and Show, Storm, those kind of things. And then level three would be the decks that laugh at Sneak and Show and Storm, which seems like Black Red Reanimator, um, also, which doesn't care about Renin Six and Plague Engineer. Uh, maybe level four is, I don't know, the secret to winning the Grand Prix. Wilson, do you have any thoughts? Well, I was just about to go to the next topic, too. Oh, well, so I think I'll have more thoughts in the next section when we specifically talk about things like Graveyard Hate, but I agree with stuff you guys are saying. I'm not going to repeat any of it. All right, next section, Ad Nauseam Tendrils at 4%. I know a lot of people are really, really high on Ad Nauseam Tendrils right now, and I think it's part of that new shiny object feel, getting to play Veil of Summer. It's new, it's exciting, it's full of life, it seems really, really good, and people love testing out new cards. And Awesome Tendrils is good against the Red and Six decks. Veil of Summer is also really good against Black Red Reanimator as it protects your hand on their combo turn from Unmask and Cabal Therapy and Thoughtseize. The downside here is 
that reanimator is just going to put Chancellor of the NX into play, and possibly even more than one copy. It's going to be really hard for Ad Nauseam Tendrils to win, even if they protected themselves with Veil of Summer. Veil of Summer is obviously very good against the blue decks, but where have they gone? Like, Stoneblade isn't super popular. It's 2.5%. Miracles is nowhere to be found. And if you're relying on Veil of Summer against Rug Delver, good luck. You have two green sources in your deck, and they play Stifle Wasteland. Do you really want your protection to be green? I wouldn't, personally. In general, Ant has a really tough time beating opposing copies of Veil of Summer. There's not a lot of lists playing main deck Empty the Warrens. And I think that... In general, if I was to give Ant as a recommendation, I'd say I don't think I'd play it at the moment. Only because if you want to beat Storm, you can do it. I've seen a lot of dedicated hate the last two weeks. I've been testing a lot myself for these upcoming big legacy events. And it just seems like Storm isn't as good as it could be due to people playing dedicated hate. Like Ethersworn Canonist. I've seen Collector Oofs. Just strange cards like Nolrod. I don't know if these are the best cards people could be playing, but they're playing them, and I don't think that leaves Ant in a good position. Yeah, one thing that you mentioned that I really do agree with is that Storm is the kind of deck you pick up when you want to beat those fair blue decks, and not seeing a lot of Stoneblade or Miracles or even Grixis Control or whatever. Four-color control hasn't been doing too well lately. I think one of the that's one of the prime reasons to build up or uh, to play Storm. But even more so than that, and I mean, like, you're more than welcome to play whatever you want for whatever reason you want, but I feel like Storm is the kind of deck where if you don't basically know every single nuance with the deck i.e like if you haven't like done your due diligence and you don't have the ten thousand hours winning the grand prix is just so much harder because it's the kind of storm is the kind of deck where like if you sit down and you haven't premeditated or premediated or whatever it is uh, premeditated yeah all the the potential lines and answers to threats and like how you would combo off in a turn while also you know killing like a canonist and stopping an aether vial that kind that kind of like weird stuff you know like reinventing that stuff on the fly is very very hard and in a 15 round tournament that will tax your mental so hard i don't know i just i think i think you have to be a master to be you know to take this deck and do well with it and and i and i mean for that reason like if i were going you to a 15 round tournament i would respect ad nauseum tendrils but lately my mantra has just been like all right, I think this is the kind of deck that I wouldn't really expect to see in paper too much, so I'm never going to really, like, dedicate my board or, like, you know, try to beat it, like, super, super aggressively um, unless it's, like, the combo deck to beat, which right now I would probably give that trophy to Black Red Reanimator and Sneaking Show. So, I don't know. That That's kind of just, like, my my personal take on the deck. The reason my, my eh with it is that it's just absurdly complicated to play and... If you make, if you even slip on like a fraction of a banana peel, you know, there goes the top eight. <laughs> I will push back deal. on that a little bit. I'm not sure that it is quite as complicated as you're saying. I think that the current ant list is actually easier to navigate in the current legacy meta than ant used to be. That's just my opinion. I think there's more matchups where uh, it's more straightforward what things matter. Um, and then in general, the deck is operating in a, on a little bit more straightforward axis. I think when you, you used to have a few more options, uh, a few more creative lines that, that come up with some free spells and whatnot. I understand the natural counter-argument to that is you had free information with the Taxi Probe. 
but in many ways that actually uh, gave you a lot more complex thought processes with figuring out knowing exactly what your opponent had and trying to play out the next few turns with that information versus a more vague calculation and guessing game uh it's just a little bit different so that's just my vibe it's still a complicated deck it's just i you just really sold it as being the hardest thing in all of gaming and i'm not sure i would go that far but i would also say i don't think the deck is that good right now and i just like i just like agreeing with you guys so much but i i do have to agree that it's just looking at all these decks, it doesn't seem that great in the meta. Now, I will say I would love to take an Ant deck against some of these stock Rug Delver decks any day. I think that's a good matchup for you. The issue is, is that there's enough four-color being thrown in there with all the, the discard spells that I don't think it's good enough to make me happy against the meta as a whole when you're throwing in all the Red Prison and Black Red Reanimator too. So, uh, so yeah, those are my thoughts. I guess Storm is also pretty good against the the depth strategies, right? Sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they're really heavy on the discard now, right? And uh they're fairly redundant and quick. I guess it depends right on which depths. But yeah, probably good against the depths deck. I think there's something interesting that's come up that a lot of players don't consider, and I've been playing around it a little bit, which is traditionally you would beat the uh, the black green depth decks by playing out your artifacts and then cantripping and placing your tutor on top and then next turn you go and get your your bomb your pass in flames your ad nauseum whatever it's a little bit different now in post board games due to the veil of summer or not veil of summer uh force of vigor because they can just blow up your lion's eye diamond and a lotus petal and now you don't have the mana to do that and it just makes you second guess your decisions a little bit and those blowouts can lead to losses but if you hold them in your hand, it's entirely possible your opponent plays a Hemdatorok or a third copy of Thoughtseize because they play eight of them. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Other Storm aficionados will say they only lose to two cards in, in, in Legacy, and those cards are Counterbalance and Chalice of the Void. And one of those cards happens to be missing right now. So maybe Storm is actually secretly really, 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 really good for you know the people that know how to play it, and I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but... Uh, I, I, I don't know. I feel like the deck is really just like the, the Gatling gun it, that it could be in the hands of a few players. And so while, I guess while we're on the topic of combo, sorry, Wilson, I'm going to change the topic. I'm warning you now. Say hey, thank last you. I appreciate words. it. Thank you listeners for, uh, for listening to my thoughts on, on that last deck. Yeah, especially our Swedish listeners. We really, really Love do. Love our Northern European. So much. Um, but yeah, I think the last combo deck that's on this list of things that we want to talk about is what Sneak and Show, which has a two and a half percent share of the MTG Goldfish metagame. Uh, this list, this deck has always just been kind of like I can never really get a good gauge of where it's at. Like, for example, it did top eight the last format playoff. Um, and I know JPA is being the monster that he is, is always you know just winning with this with this deck. Uh, we saw that it did win the last challenge, in fact leveraging Veil of Summer as the new piece of technology uh, with one tropical island. I don't know. This deck seems pretty interesting, and I might, I might, I might, I think I should give it a little bit more credit where credit is due. How do you feel about the the new variation of Sneak and Show, like the, quote, four color that splashes the one the one trop for the, the Wouldn't that be Summers? three colors? I consider Ancient Tomb and City of Traders <laughs> a color. 
I never know how to feel about Sneak and Show either, so I'm glad you said that because people will say it's nuts in the metagame and I'm never sure to believe them or they'll say it's bad and I think yeah, it's probably fine. You're still just putting Crystal Brand into play. I think it's always a reasonable choice to enter in any large event depending on how good you are at mulliganing and I think that's the real skill with Sneak and Show is just knowing the hands that you can keep and the hands that you can't. And outside of that, I think the deck sort of plays itself. I don't want to say it's an idiot deck because that's not true, but I think the real skill comes from Mulligan decisions and everything else is a little bit straightforward. On a Veil of Summer as like a pseudo silence effect against all the control slash tempo deck seems really nuts. Like get four mana into play, cast Veil of Summer. What is your Delver opponent going to do? Spell pierce it? No, because you get to draw a card and pay for the spell pierce. I don't know. That that seems pretty exciting, pretty hot bananas. I had a, I didn't put this in the show notes, but I had a beloved listener say to me, uh, what about Eureka with four Veil of Summer? Oh, yeah, no, JPA also 5-0'd with that at some point in time, too. And in fact, his list had like Shifting Ceratops, which was super, super exciting. I like Veil of Summer. I just think that people are overrating it a little bit right now. I think it is a good magic card, so don't come after me, internet or Twitter. It's a good card. I think people are rating it at like an eight and a half out of ten right now, and I'm more at like a six point five. This deck I would also say is favored against Dark Depths. I think the Delver matchups are kind of close, and I feel like this deck should beat up on the Fair Blue decks. And Snaring Bridge is kind of a problem out of Red Prison. Mm, I don't know. For this is just my gut feeling again, tingling. This is the same thing that said that Depths was like not where I'd want to be, but I feel like I just I don't know. I feel like Show and Tell is. Pretty powerful right now. If I had to put it into words, well, the Veil of Summer inclusion definitely gives you a lot of game against uh, blue. And then against non-blue, you just have, in general, you have like a much more powerful strategy. Like you're able to like consistently execute your strategy. Like, yes, there may be like, you know, hurdles along the way, like like Knight of the Reliquary getting into playoff show and tell or things like that. But I don't know. Omniscience also does sort of change the game. I feel like the deck has historically just been losing to itself. I think so I know what it is. I wonder why if, you like Sneak and Show and not these other decks. Ponder, Brainstorm, mm-hmm. Force of Will. That that might be it, yeah. But speaking of those cards, just, we have two more decks to quickly talk about. Um, honestly, I think we should just lump them together because I don't think there's a huge difference in them. I mean, they're obviously different decks, but their percentages are very similar in the metagame. They're both decent against the same deck. I'm talking about Blue White Blade and Four Color Control. Those seem to be totally different decks to me. Well, I'm trying to save us some time, Wilson. Oh, Can I okay, just play okay. along? Oh, yeah, they're the same. Thank you. <laughs> you do we want to just recategorize this as Blue sure. Soup? Blue Soup decks. Wilson wrote Stoneforge Mystic sucks, but the mana base is nice. No, I, I wrote that the mana base is nice. So I think for Blade, what I do particularly like about this, right, is that you've got that pristine mana base, but unlike Miracles, like if, if I could play Miracles, believe me, I would. But right now, I just kind of feel like it's unplayable. Blade has creatures that actually just solves like a big portion of the problems that Miracles has right now. So Miracles isn't really good at dealing with cards like Dreadhorn or, or Chalice and of the Void. Six. Um or Chalice of the Void, right? And and Stoneforge Mystic and True Name, you know, those cards are good at blocking. Cards like Dreadhorn Arcanist, they're good at attacking. Cards like uh, Renin Six. And... Wait, you think that this deck is better against Dreadhorn than Miracles? Yes. There's like half the number of removal spells. Yeah, there's probably fewer removal spells, but I think the element of being 
like proactive and getting a threat that the Delver deck just cannot interact with once it's in play is 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 especially powerful, right? Like Miracles, I would even argue, is kind of like a it is somewhat of like a narrow linear deck, right? It just does one thing, but it, it tries to do it really well. Whereas Stone Forge Mystic decks or sorry, Stone Blade is kinda like you can either get on the board, equip and control that way, or you can have like a wall of permission in your hand kind of deal. I don't know. Something about having creatures in play right now just feels really important to me in a world where planeswalkers are really, really strong and and the creatures on turn two are really, really strong. And Stone Blade is able to fight on that access, whereas Miracles is not. I would like to derail for a quick second. There was a spoiler that was shared in a storm chat that I am in that is a sorcery speed brainstorm. It's called Premonition. Uh, don't know how real it is. It came from Reddit. Uh, you can only see part of the card. But from what people are speculating is that it's literally just brainstorm, but at sorcery speed. And it was coming up that would you play this card in TES or would you play this card in Ad Nauseam Tendrils? But my mind immediately went to Miracles. I thought of you, Anurag. Is it? Wait, what color is it? Are you serious? I have not uh, seen this Yeah, it was on anywhere. Reddit. I can send you the screenshot later. Uh, but my mind quickly went to, this is another card to put Terminus on top of my deck, which is, I think, the biggest issue with Miracles right now is that Terminus is unreliable as an answer. Wait, if this is a real card, then Miracles would be broken again, because that is literally, we are in the same boat here. I think the worst part about Miracles right now is that you cannot consistently Terminus for a cheap cost. Oh my god, you got me really excited. All right, well, keep it in your pants until we're done recording, and then I will send you the screenshot. Okay, so more importantly, back to the discussion of Blue-White Stoneblade. Anrag, let's play a game of mental magic with our listeners right now. Okay. Okay, so... Turn one Black Lotus Island Jace, no, your no, turn. No, 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 you're playing Blue-White Stoneblade, and I'm just playing a deck that's popular in the format. You, you win the die roll, you go first. Okay. Island Ponder. <laughs> Why did you have to pop? Just play an island. No, I'm casting pass. Ponder. Play an island. Okay, fine. Yeah. Okay, I draw my fourth force will. No, no, I'm doing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, this is. Do I win? This, Did I win this, on turn? This isn't one? gonna work. This was supposed to be against Honor. Honor, I just wanted you to play a Stone Forge on turn two. Well, I was gonna do that on my and turn then? two. I just wanted to draw my fourth force will. First. And then I was gonna bolt it. Yeah, so I'd force it. I was gonna bolt it, and then I was gonna see what you did. Well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Stoneforge Mystic dies to Bolt, but that's like, that's fine. It's not the only thing that the deck does. And you are trading, like, that is technically, I mean, that's what, what Stoneblade wants to happen, right? You want that turn two Stoneforge to get destroyed? Only, no, no, I disagree. You want the Batter Skull to get into play. And the the world of value whatever tries to trick you into believing that it's somehow good for you if your Stoneforge dies. I'm actually really glad you just said that the way that you said it. It's it's as if we've had these some somebody tell us all this lie that you actually want your Stoneforge to die. Because the problem becomes in a Ren and Six meta, you're not actually outvaluing people with Stoneforge Mystic. That's like such an old school thing to, to have been doing. Nowadays people are either winning the game very quickly, or all fair decks have tons of value built in because of Ren and Six, and even Dreadhorde Arcanist is is generating some value. And then they even have their threats that you can't answer with like True Name Nemesis that, that negate some value. So Stoneforge, like in the, in terms of being a value card, I just don't think in the modern era the value gets there in Legacy. I think there's meta games obviously, and their matchups where Batter Skull is good, 
But my point in trying to bolt your Stoneforge is you don't get this hypothetical world of a quick batter skull against the other fair decks. And because of that, you also don't have your Stoneforge blocking the Dreadhorde Arcanist, which I also think is, by the way, a side point. But I wanted to point out that there's no way that this deck is better against specifically the card Dreadhorde than Miracles is. And I think that you're actually on fairly on the back foot against some of these other popular blue decks, including the next one we're going to talk about, which is four color uh, control. Well, I so think that's my, my issue with so I think that Stoneblade does something very well that four color control does not do, and that's answer big creatures. So Merit Lage, Hogak, you get Caracas, which is like I'd be playing one main one side right now. I'm, yeah. Oh, well, let me clarify, Brian. I'm not saying that four color is generally better against the meta at all. I'm just saying, like, against those two decks pitted against each other, you know, it's just another example where Stoneforge Mystic as a card is not good. Yes, you're right. You brought up the good point, which is that Source of Plowshares is a good card right now. It's a card I'd want to be playing, uh, and I just don't just don't like the threat base and the mid ranginess of of blue white Stoneblood, though. Yeah, but I do think it is the better blue white deck of the moment. And I know that you don't like hearing that, but it's really good because of Red Prison. It beats the Chalice of the Void decks. You don't ha- your deck isn't twenty one casting cost cantrips. Like you actually have a proactive game plan that can disrupt your opponent. Oh, well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't like hearing that that it's the best plow deck. I think I don't think Miracles is very good. I just don't think either deck is very good. Well, I mean that's why I'm they're not... two point five percent of the meta and not six. Right, right, right. So that would be my my I guess final point on it is. I just, I think that's the problem with plow decks is I don't personally think they're very good, regardless of whether or not it's the best plow deck. All right, so four-color control. I, Anurag would like to hear this. Swords to plowshares in four-color control, I think would actually make that deck a lot better at the moment. If you could fit white into that deck, play swords to plowshares over lightning bolts and fatal pushes, and so that way you have a little bit more game against the depth decks, because I think that's where four-color is losing at the moment. The black base removal isn't as good as it was a month ago, and I think if you could swap black removal for, you know, sorts of plowshares and possibly other things, the deck would be a lot more playable, which is something similar to Anurag's pile that he was running. Yeah, I've been trying that out a lot, and I can tell you already, um, I'm going to just jump the curve a little bit. I think that four-color white does struggle in some issues that I have yet to be able to solve, particularly when you end up carding car- cutting cards like Abrupt Decay and Kolagon's Command for Swords to Plowshares. You become really, really good at killing creatures, but you lose the versatility in killing cards like Renin Six, like with Abrupt Decay, and you lose the versatility in killing, um, I guess, like True Name with uh, like Plague Engineer kind of deal. Uh, so those are the two like subsets like planeswalkers are kind of hard to answer and true name is kind of hard to answer but i do think that if you're trying to pivot and beat like dark depth strategies that you get a lot better and i'm going to argue that the combo matchups with four color white are fine um i mean your clock is still somewhat crazy but like if you look at the list that like edgar did really well with at uh, one of the the uh, face-to-face events you know you could see that he's like relying a lot on cards like narset to sort of carry him cephalid coliseum and narset is pretty sweet by edgar the way who? um edgar mahalas okay just wanted to share that for our listeners i know who you're talking about but maybe our listeners don't. okay yeah yeah so i i think uh it depends what you want to be able to beat i think plow obviously it's naturally just really good against the 2020s um and it's also you know just 
clean removal that takes care of everything. However, there you there is always going to be that trade-off, and I'm still trying to figure out how to solve that trade-off. I'll let you guys know as soon as I figure it out. Okay, so we spent a long time on section one. Let's head over to section two. What decks do we recommend to combat the most popular decks in the metagame? So I'm going to preface just, just by like saying that I don't think there is a correct answer, and I think that it is pretty rock, paper, scissors. One unique thing about the legacy format right now that I don't think we've really seen historically is that there's no, there's not really a best deck, and so the legacy format is kind of just like changing at a pretty rapid pace. Like week by week, you'll see different decks succeeding, sort of as a way to retaliate against decks that did you know really well in the week prior or the week before that. So when we talk about what deck to play, maybe we'll also say like what deck we expect it to beat and you know if you want to beat this this is what you should play kind of deal right so well no that that, that sounds like a total cop-out to me i actually agree with honorog because that's a sign of a healthy metagame and i think that's why some people on reddit are getting a little bit upset is that they don't want to keep up week to week and they don't like paying attention so they get punished so there has to be a best strategy because we don't have three decks making up exactly, you know, 33.3% of the format each, right? So there's some sort of metagame that we have to guess every week. And there's definitely going to be a best deck to choose. So we certainly have an option. Like, it's not just that, oh, it's everything is exactly rock, paper, scissors. It's exactly even. So it's up. You just just play whatever you want. And you beat some things and you lose to others. I would argue it's up for us to figure out which deck to play to beat the most things and to maximize the best possible matchups. Would you disagree with that? I think, okay, here's here's what I'm trying to say, right? Is that you can pick any deck and it's going to have some good matchups, but there is no deck in Legacy right now that does not have at least one bad matchup. And that's what I mean when I say that the Legacy format is rotating because people will pick deck A and next week people will pick deck B, which is good against deck A, and then deck C, which is good against deck B. And then and there's like you make a cycle eventually at some point. Yeah, but You get what I'm saying? Yeah, but the answer can't just be to pick one of them and like say, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to pick one because it's all even because there's no way that all the options are are equal. Right. Well, I'm saying that the metric that you would use to define what is the best deck right now is probably, you know, you use like prior prior results to say like, all right, if this deck did well last week, you know, next deck, I probably want to beat this deck, you know, by playing another deck, that kind of thing. And then like, I mean, in general, I'm just saying like all the top tier decks have really good win percentages across the board, but there's going to be like one hole. So like if you rotate, if you, if you switch from like, you know, Dark Depths one week to like Delver the next week, you might be able to beat. I don't know, like some bad matchup for Dark Depths, like let's say like Sneak and Show, but then you lose to like, you know, Blade or something like that, right? So you still, it, I, I don't feel like I'm answering your question. Wilson. Well, we can go deeper on your answer because it's fine answer, but you just used an example of Blade, which we're saying in our meta analysis is actually not very popular, right? So if you are given this meta, if you are going to pick a deck that maybe loses to Blade and beats Depths, maybe that's a good option. I'd argue it, it probably is given the metagame density if we think that the metagame density will continue and if we also think that Paper Magic is reflected properly by the Magic Online meta. Would you you think that's fair? Uh, Why don't we just I don't know. jump into what decks we think are fine instead of circle jerking? I like this topic. I think it's interesting, but I'm also willing to talk about what we think is good. 
Uh, what do we think about? Well, yeah, okay, fine. Brian, get off that. What do you think? All right. Well, I'll put you in the hot. I seat. really like four color loam right now, and that's because the deck goes bigger than Delver decks, and has great game against combo. Not always in game one, but the post-board games, I feel like you become a heavy favorite. So in game one, you have Chalice of the Void, and especially with the London Mulligan, you're much more easily to find this Chalice. But you also have Gaddick T to lock things down against Storm Combo, but not Black Red Reanimator. Asterix there. So you have Green Sun Zeniths to get your Teagues with Mox Diamonds, so you can have it as early as turn two, or hypothetically your turn one, but that's pretty rare. But on top of that, you have Caracas for Merit Lage and Gak and Gristle Brands that come into play on turn one. It's very, very good. But in post-board games against Combo, you have Leyline of the Void. And I think that's a card that is a all-star right now. So with Reanimator and Ad Nauseam Tendrils being huge, this is the type of dedicated hate that I think would be essential for this upcoming weekend for those two big legacy events online. Because it hits both of them in a very meaningful way. If you can cut ad nauseum titles off of past in flames, their ad nauseums are very unreliable. And against Black Red Reanimator, it forces them to interact with you in a way that they're not very good at interacting, which is answering what you do instead. And then postboard on top of that, you get a couple copies of Thalia. And Thalia is always good at slowing, com- slowing down combo decks. And lastly, against the Moon decks, you get to play two, possibly three, if you're. I think three is a little bit of a stretch, but two copies of Force of Vigor. I think this card is just so good in the metagame at the moment because it helps you beat your worst matchup in the Moon Stompy decks. And if you do get paired against, you know, these Run and Six Blue Stew decks or Blue White Blade, you can beat them. You're good at grinding. If I could make one recommendation for four color lone players right now, though. I don't think I like Liliana of the Veil. I would try to find a more meaningful card for the current metagame. I just don't think Lily's that good. Can I summarize what you just said and and sort of ask it back to you? Okay. So are you telling me that this deck is good because it plays the most disruptive cards that are specifically good against certain matchups of four different colors? With no deck manipulation to find these cards. London Mulligan, baby. <laughs> so I guess my my point would be, I understand what you're saying, Bryant, but I also think, here's the thing, I think Ren and Six and True Name Nemesis give the hyper-efficient blue decks a lot of late game and a lot of value that keep me away from a deck like this. The draw that I've always had to play something like Four Color Loam is that it's one of the better grindy options that also has some combo game in the format. And if I, I can just get said that. that if I can get that grind with some of these more efficient blue decks, I personally just don't really like for a color alone. But Chalice of the Void. I think that some of these mid range blue decks don't do that well against combo and Chalice fixes that. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about other Chalice of the Void decks that could potentially be good, I know Bomberman has also been putting up some results, and I think that deck is criminally undervalued. Um, I don't know if it's something that I would necessarily bring to to combat the the current metagame, but I do like that it has the aspect of, you know, Chalice of the Void to, to prison people out, prison combo ads very specifically, and then pretty, pretty nice, resilient um, plan... I mean, well, just like just like a nice combo that is, is pretty resilient. I mean, Karn is a one-card combo, and then Oriox Salvagers is pretty good against Lightning Bolt, and then Monastery Mentor is just like a haymaking 
side swinging um and end condition is is is, is pretty tight uh, i think Bomberman actually ended up winning the, the the Vegas MCQ, by the way. But part of the issue with Bomberman is that online, you have to manually do your combo over and over and over and over, and you can possibly time out. Yeah. So I don't know if I I don't know if I would bring it for the events this weekend, but something to keep in the back of my mind. I mean, I'm not, I, I'll tell you what I would probably look into currently like as a blue white mage who really likes swords to plowshares i i do not think i would leave home without a way to answer a 2020 which already just like you know limits my decks to either not caring about the 2020 like aka combo or swords to plowshares right i i think swords to plowshares is just insane and so i probably and i know like wilson's gonna disagree with me but i think stoneblade is still just like a very good um very good deck right now and i think actually there's some underplayed tools that you know stoneblade can leverage and we might talk about this in the next section or i could just throw it out of here but i think rest in peace is a very powerful card right now as that well. was in my notes yeah yeah i've been i've been screaming at a couple friends of mine that like i've been playing a little bit of blue white helm too that's a card that might be um a nice little uh you know gotcha gotcha deck uh, energy field seems like it's pretty good against some of the decks i mean not necessarily dark depths but against delver in game one i really like rest in peace energy field uh and i think in game two uh you you get a veil of summer which is pretty cool uh to protect your your threats from cards like abrupt decay uh, but rest in peace does certainly obliterate cards like ren and six and and dreadhorde arcanist so I don't know, Stoneblade, Blue White, that's where I'd probably be. Blue White, I think Stoneblade specifically, like having Trune being able to put that into play and like turn sideways to attack, you know, the enemy planeswalkers. True name is just king of like these sort of mid-range slash blue control decks. And Plague Engineer is somewhat of a problem for Blade, but I don't know if there's a Red and Six deck that really is like none of the Red and Six decks that we mentioned right now really leverage Plague Engineer except for um for color delver and that one seems to be on the decline in favor of rug delver i guess brian props to you because four color alone does have access to both ren and six and plague engineer so i mean stoneblade would never really want to be playing against uh aggro Lum anyways imo unless you've got like lots of true names and forces to counter plague engineers but that's just where my headspace is at hey i have a question for you fine gentlemen so you just mentioned Dreadhorde Arcanist on Rog, but I have observed that Dreadhorde Arcanist is massively decreasing in popularity with only two people out of the top 32 players in the last challenge playing the card. I know that Blue Red Delver is down to less than 2% of the meta, and many of the Rug lists are not even playing anymore. And if they are, they've definitely trimmed the copies. So do you all still take Dreadhorde into consideration in your deck choice or is it largely renin six as the uh important pillar of the format renin six i mean we've already had an episode on this but i just don't think that their dread horde numbers are currently there to make it a big player it's a fine card it's just not a big player right now there's better things that you can be doing yeah i think renin six is easily a much more of a frightening two mana spell or it's just like definitely more on my radar than Dreadhorde Arcanist but unfortunately when I'm playing Miracles or something like that like Dreadhorde Arcanist is the card that I also have to be very very mindful of so having you know that having my versatile spells answer Dreadhorde Arcanist and Red and Six is kind of a necessity for me so I don't know that's why I think Spell Center and Blue Blast are pretty powerful but I think I'm already jumping the gun yeah I, I, I would answer your question with yes Wilson 
All right. So we've already talked about a little bit about how you would build your cyborg to beat these decks that we've mentioned. Anurag, you wanted to talk about Rest in Peace. Here's your spotlight. It does everything. I don't know. Like, okay, here's how I found out about Rest Anurag, in Peace. Anurag, why is your head shaking right now? Because I'm really excited about this card, Brian. You don't understand. Here's how I found out about Rest in Peace, okay? I played my Red and Six on turn two. It resolved. I ticked up and got a fetch land. My opponent played Rest in Peace on turn two. I looked at my Red and Six, and then I realized that it was an irrelevant card. Um, the minus one ability in the against the Rest in Peace decks, I, I guess specifically out of Stoneblade, I think. Rest in Peace is just insane. Um, versus Red and Six, because you just you blank the card entirely. Um, most of the decks that are leveraging Rest in Peace, or sorry, Red and Six, also have other graveyard-based synergies. So I'm looking at, you know, Rug Delver very specifically, right? Which has Tarmogoyf, that's the big one. And then also it has, uh, what is it, Dreadhorde Arcanist in some quantity. So being able to knock out basically three of the primary threats is just, I think that's insane game. Um, but then your threats are also somewhat, you know, resilient to, to the, the, the downtick on Red and Six as well. So the card functionally... Doesn't do much against Rest in Peace. I guess if you're playing like Death and Taxes and you have Rest in Peace, it's still, you know, your creatures could get pinged, but you're, we've already talked about how Death and Taxes can adjust to beat Rest in Peace with cards like Giver of Runes and, you know, Force of, Vir- Force of Virtue and things like that. You mean so, Red and Six. You said Rest in Peace. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You, you get what I'm trying yeah. to say. Um, when I'm adding to your point. Rest in Peace also fixes the bad matchups for Stoneblade. Traditionally, as a Storm player, you lick your lips when you find out your opponent's playing Stoneforge Mystic. That may, that's a pretty big difference maker. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I think one of the best ways for a blue-white deck to approach the Storm matchup is to have troublesome permanence in play. I've seen, for example, like Tormod Script do absurd things. Nile Spellbomb do absurd things against like Storm decks, for example. And yeah, like also, I guess we could just talk about how good Rest in Peace is against Black Red Reanimator. Or actually, we don't even need to because that seems sort of just like textbook obvious. You know, they don't they don't have a graveyard. They can't do anything. So I, I don't know. Rest in Peace seems to do it all. Um, I would say that it's probably not good against... Well, it's, it's good against Hogak, but it's probably not good against... Uh, like Sneaking Cho, sure. Mono Red, sure. But you've got other tools to beat those decks. I mean, you are naturally in 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 the all basics to beat Blood Moon, and you are you've got, you know, a sideboard full of counter spells to beat decks like, you know, show and tell, plus you've got access to like cards like Caracas and Containment Priest, Hate Bears in general, those are pretty good. Um so yeah, I think if I wanted to build a sideboard to beat these decks because again legacy is a format where people don't really change decks and they change sideboards i would look towards a card like rest in peace i think in that general pattern of play cards like relic of progenitus are also pretty good as well as something like nile spellbomb so if you're if you're playing like fair magic definitely look towards graveyard hate uh another card that i was thinking about that was kind of cool was ground seal that one seems pretty interesting as well what deck would you want to be playing ground seal on I don't know. It's just a green card that I thought of that that used to see a reasonable amount of play. Like maybe there's a Bant deck that exists out there, or like a Bug deck that exists out there. There's kind of somewhat of a clash with Snapcaster Mage. But and like, you're on Ren and Six. Ground Seal. Well, if yeah, I mean, I would assume you're not playing Ren and Six in this deck, but turning off your opponent's Ren and Sixes um, is pretty cool, and then you know, turning off Reanimates and Animate Deads is is pretty cool. I don't know. That's just a someone test it out and let me know what you think. Are you playing Hex Drinker in that deck? You could be. You could even be playing like Merit Lodge in that deck, I guess. Right? Uh, they probably don't care for 
You could combine your blue white home deck with your stone blade deck and run stone blade with main deck, rest in peace, and like a one of helm to beat some of those bad matchups. Random thought. That's something definitely to consider as well, man. So a card Uh, that I wanted to talk about again was Veil of Summer. So I I kind of I didn't crap on it earlier, but I didn't give it the highest rating. I think where Veil of Summer is super good is when it's unexpected. So decks that you normally wouldn't expect to see it out of, so like Rugdelver. If you are a Rugdelver deck and you're facing Ad Nauseam Tendrils, Veil of Summer is amazing because it guarantees that you're going to live another turn. And maybe that's all you need for your Delver Secrets to finish off your opponent or a Lightning Bolt or something like that. Like it, It is that extra turn. And that means a lot. Because if your opponent knows about it, they can play around it. And that's one of the big things with the Veil of Summer. With TES, you can Grape Shot your opponent for 21 or you can empty the Warrens. But with Ad Nauseam Tendrils, you kind of get pigeonholed into Tendrilsing a lot just because they don't have that empty the Warrens in the main deck. But if it's a post-board game, and you're holding on to Veil of Summer, here's some advice for you. Don't just sit on it and wait for Tendrils. Because if they cast Ad Nauseam, they can reveal into Flusterstorm. Or if they cast Past in Flames and they play a Brainstorm, and they draw into Flusterstorm, and then you go to Veil of Summer, that Veil of Summer is going to get countered. So it, I would play it at a crucial moment on their turn, maybe in response to one of these two big engine cards, and just make sure that you're going to live post-board. It's just my thought. You can try to just get them with the tendrils. Maybe they have an empty in their deck. Maybe they don't. But I'd rather play it safe and get that extra turn rather than just dying. Another deck that you can possibly play it in is Black Green Depths. It saves your cards from bounce spells like Chain of Vapor or Echoing Truth. Uh, It also stops Vapor Snag. Make sure your spells resolve if you really need to get that Hex Mage to stick. And I've talked enough, so Wilson. All sounds great to me. Uh, there was one card that I did want to talk about that I also thought was kind of cool, uh, and that is Graftigger's Cage. Just like I'm just going to mention some random things, right? But if your deck can support it, you should look into this. Right, Graftigger's Cage does. Um, I played it with Karn, so maybe my perspective is a little bit skewed. But if you are playing Karn, I don't know what world. Actually, you know what, Phil, cut this part out. <laughs> what? No. Because I was going to talk about Graftiger's Cage stopping the Ren Emblem, but that doesn't seem like it's really that good. Dude, keep going. I, I think you're on a roll. I have a question for you guys. Hypothetically, you're playing four color loam. You're playing four Leyline of the Void. Also, if I was playing Mono Red Stompy, I'd be playing four Leyline of the Void in my board. I actually like really like the silver uh, bullet copy of Helm of Obedience to win in the Mono Red list. I think that's perfect. Uh, but if you're playing Leyline of the Void, and you're paired against Hogak Depths, would you consider boarding it in? It only stops half their combo, and I don't know if that's good enough. I feel like that's falling for the trap, right? That's one of the reasons why Hogak Depths is so good, because it's got a really solid, or I wouldn't say solid, but maybe like a really consistent plan A, and a really consistent plan B. Maybe not as consistent as, um, you know, other decks, but they're still like relatively, they're there, and they can do it really well. And when you dilute your deck with a card like Leyline of the Void to stop the Hogak aspect of the deck, right? I feel like you just get whammied, like 2020 um, 
more more often than not if that makes sense right and plus there's like i mean assuming there's like you know a full three games in the match your opponent's going to be able to like adapt and and sort of see like oh well you know you know this mono red player boarded in ley line of the void i maybe like shave a hogak or something like that and then just like focus or more just on, like, board that mod entirely yeah, yeah, yeah exactly i mean mono red does happen to have a really good time against dark depths right the blood moon deck but like you mentioned it is kind of risky with the um force of uh vigor i guess oh that's another reason that you maybe not wouldn't want the ley line of the void that force of vigor blowout would be even harder um or would hit even harder uh i i i don't i don't know i i think i would probably just try to rely on the prison pieces that are good against both of the combos both of the angles of attack rather than you know make my deck sort of even more uh inconsistent although the london mulligan does do an insane job for the mono red deck however i guess i mean the london mulligan can't magically fix everything you have to have something some semblance of consistency in the deck and adding the ley line of the void IMO sort of decreases from that where I'd rather just, you know, go turn one chalice, turn two planeswalker kind of deal. Yeah, I'll provide an alternative perspective on this. So I think where I may differ is that when you're playing mono red stompy, you're you don't care about all of the cards necessarily that you have. Uh each card, for example, you have some cards that shut off five or more cards in your opponent's hand or, or over the course of the next few turns, right? Sometimes you have redundant lands that do literally nothing and you can't manipulate your deck, so that's not good. You're sort of playing a different game plan. And what I have learned from playing Modern in matchups where Gurmag Angler is very important is even even if the entire deck itself, and I'm thinking about Death Shadow, is uh, not necessarily reliant on something like Gurmag, but if they play four or five Delve creatures even, as maybe half their threats, it can still be worth it to play the Leyline plan. And I sort of think the same thing here, when you have some cards that are there to totally shut down the Depths plan, something like Magus of the Moon, you, it can be complemented to have maybe one Leyline in your opening hand, um, because that's sort of the game plan that you're playing, is you're, you're trying to take care of everything. In general, Hogat can actually be a, a pretty good threat at getting around what the ways the opponent is trying to tack depths in some way. And so Anurag, when you say like, oh, I just want to be playing Chalice and then Planeswalker, I would argue that if you do boarded Leyline, you're not boarding it in for those types of cards. So I'd also really want to take a look at like a sideboard map and uh, probably find something reasonable to cut and, and certainly consider bringing in Leylines there. All right, so a question for you. Let's say you're not playing Leyline, and you have three sideboard slots in your sideboard. A lot of people will default to playing three copies of Surgical Extraction. It's a pretty good all-around card. But if you're playing Blade, for example, I actually really like splitting, and I would run two Surgical Extraction and one copy of Rest in Peace. So I like two copies of Surgical because they allow you to interact quickly, which is very important for matchups like Reanimator. But I think a card like Rest in Peace allows you to close the door. And with that, I mean, because these games can be top deck wars eventually. Rest in Peace is a card that's really tough for the black-red opponent to answer. 
But also, what are the odds that they boarded an, an, uh, an answer for a card like Rest in Peace? Having something like Rest in Peace or Cage or something along those lines is difficult because your opponent wants hand disruption for your surgicals, but they don't want to be boarding that out for, I don't know, Wear Terror, just some random card. And it ends up eventually diluting their deck if they know that you have a one of Rest in Peace or something like that. And if you force them to try to interact on both axes, they're either going to lose or they're going to dilute themselves to the point where it might be easier for you to win. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like Surgical Extraction currently is not very well positioned. I don't know. I think it's good against Red Black Reanimator exactly, but against the other combo decks, like even like it just feels it feels medium compared to where it should be i remember like one of the reasons when i switched to one of the reasons why i switched to surgical extraction and miracles way back when was because of lands yeah i just felt like rest in peace wasn't doing it and like surgical was a nice way to just like remove game plans from their deck but nowadays like in other matchups like against storm yeah you can like tag their discard spells or maybe if you get lucky you can tag like a vital combo piece or something like that but that's not that's like a that's like a conditional ceiling a conditionally high ceiling i feel like the floor in general is like you have to set up work hard to make it make it do something whereas a card like you know rest in peace or like tormod's crypt or you know relic of pretenders is just a lot more you play it and it just like absolutely messes with them you don't have to really work too much about it um turning off all their thresholds and past and flames and things like that um yeah it's surgical extraction like in other matchups like it's i i wouldn't particularly want it against um like it's good against sneak and show so that's one place where you know that specific piece of graveyard hate is nice but against maybe i don't know i'm trying to think like when daniel gochel won the grand prix he was playing five pieces of graveyard hate and none of them were surgical extraction he had two copies of containment priest and three copies of tormod script right and it just feels like surgical extraction was like so mainstream that you know it's on everybody's radar and the decks that you want to have it to beat right like you want it against like dredge for example right they have specifically built their sideboards to like mitigate the impact of a card like surgical extraction so for example i'm saying like cards like silent gravestone or you know, um, how does Black Red Reanimator beat it? They just like go under it, right? That kind of deal, or maybe just like, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing, right? So, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of agree with you. I like diversifying it. The first of it's like diminishing returns, right? The first copy of you know effect of an effect is like better than the fourth copy of like a different effect or whatever it is. Um, maybe, maybe that's just like rambling, and maybe that's not. Well, with the London Mulligan, you can also find your one of a lot more easily. Not that you yeah. want rest in peace in your opener, but if for some reason you live long enough to cast it, it's a blowout. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but I think one of my my overarching feelings about the legacy format today is that it's kind of snowbally. Like the player that's able to get you know ahead first is able to like hit the gas pedal and and like take that lead further away. And I don't feel like Surgical Extraction is the kind... I mean, this is just specific to Surgical Extraction versus other pieces of Graveyard Hate, but I don't feel like Surgical Extraction is the kind of card that uh, that does that in a lot of matchups. I feel like other pieces of Graveyard Hate might be, I mean, a little bit stronger in the Graveyard Hate matchups. Okay. So I know that we mentioned it earlier, but a Braid. Wilson mentioned it as a possible option for Mono Red Prison 
to fight back against Blue Eye Blade. I actually really, really like that. I haven't seen any lists with four personally, but I've seen lists with two to destroy Batter Skull. Previously, I was a really big fan of Chandra Awaken and Inferno to beat the blue white decks when Miracles was a little bit more popular, but I think it's not that good against Blade because while it can kill a Stoneforge Mystic, that Batter Skull's probably already in play, and Chandra only deals three damage. So even if you plus one and get an emblem, that Batter Skull's still getting three life per turn and then two life per turn. And it's possible that you're just dead if it's Batter Skull is attacked to the point where you're dealing them damage. Yeah, plus there was a point that was mentioned, right? Like where Blood Moon is in play, like Awakened Inferno is probably uncastable. Um, I know the Awakened Inferno did place well in a couple big events over in the Eastern Hemisphere, um, but I'm not really sure if it's a card that's going to stand the test of time. So, yeah. And then going back to our last episode, I love Celestial Purge. It answers Hogak, Merit Lage, Blood Moon, Rabble Master, Renin Six, Plague Engineer. I just think that this card should see a lot more play if you are on the Stoneblade side of things. Put it in your sideboard. It also costs two. You can slide it right next to your rest in peace. It'll look great. I promise. Just try a couple. You'll thank me later. I actually, th- I actually have a differing opinion from you. I actually, if I was playing blue white, I'd probably stockpile a couple more Hydroblasts than Celestial Purge. They have a lot of similar targets, but I think um hydroblast obviously like being one mana cheaper means that it's i I think it's a little bit easier to cast also you know just like off basic island is is pretty good um i don't know for me like source of plowshares is going to do a lot of the uh, good things that you know celestial purge is also able to do like answer marilage or answer answer hogak but but hydro hydroblast is able to i don't know the, the delta between one mana and two mana is almost like an infinite gulf and i feel like that's one reason to play Hydroblast. What what else does Hydroblast do? He gets countered by uh, Chalice of the Void. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I would just play it for the mana efficiency. I feel like that's that's a lot of where the, the blue-white decks need a lot of help. Um, Celestial Purge, trading two mana for two mana is not bad, but in a world where these two mana spells are really just generating a lot of advantage, I think you need to be able to answer them on the spot. Like, as soon as they hit the table, and Celestial Purge doesn't always give you that, where... Whereas, I mean, especially like like I'm saying, and I'm saying this like on in the early turns where that that snowball lead that I was talking about earlier is more likely to 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 develop. I feel like Hydroblast is just easier to cast. One mana versus two mana, simple as that. But yeah. how do you get rid of your opponent's Argul's Bloodfest? Can't beat it. They win. You got it. Sweet. Well, everybody, I think that probably wraps. Whoa, up whoa, the whoa, 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 whoa. I would like to give everyone a pretty good laugh first. And I know it's it's going to be laughable coming from me, but I think it's actually pretty solid advice. I don't think people should be playing dedicated storm hate. <laughs> Hear me out. I know it's pretty funny, but... That was actually really funny. What the... So, by this, I mean, I've played a lot of leagues in the last few weeks. I've seen Collector Oof out of Rugdelver. Cinder Vines out of Rugdelver. Aethersworn Cannonist out of Blue White Stoneblade. I think that these are all fine cards, and they are good against Ad Nauseam Tendrils and the Epic Storm, but they are such a small portion of the metagame where I don't know if these sort of cards are worth it, and instead, an effect like Rest in Peace, that would it's good against both the second and third most popular deck in the format. That's a bigger haymaker there, in my opinion, and you can get more versatility out of these slots 
were immediate like a hydro blast, like Anurag mentioned. You could board in against Sneak and Show. I'm not saying Hydro Blast is good against those decks. That was probably a bad example. But there will be cards that you can end up using in more matchups rather than something super narrow, like an Ethersworn Canonist or a Cinder Vines, for example. Because while Ant is a reasonable player in the metagame, there's better cards that you can play to hit multiple decks. My favorite part of that comment is it's it's the concluding comment of the episode. All right. So it's really going to stick with the listener, you know. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has almost been about two hours. We really do appreciate you guys making it this far. Uh, I got nothing else to say. Brian Wilson? Nope, that's it. See you guys later. All right. This episode was sponsored by Cardboard Live and the EpicStorm.com. I don't even know what song that was, but I feel like Bryant ruined it, so...